Tony and team, thank you so much for leading us in worship. And Tony, I'm glad you stepped in for that open devotion. Uh, thank you so much. I had the joy this morning to be over at Canal Fulton worshiping with Pastor Robbie and them over there. And I uh, just had a, a wonderful time. Uh, last night I was at a local church worshiping with their faith family and had a wonderful time. And as I prayed a moment ago, it dawned on me just the rhythm of a worship service really could be the rhythm of a life, right? I wake up every morning and start with just an acknowledgement of who God is, uh, his sovereignty, his grace, and just give him thanks uh, for who he is, but then maybe move that into thinking specifically about who he is in Christ Jesus and what he has done to redeem and save us from sin and death. And finally, maybe when you get out of bed, you're at the point where you're getting ready to start your day and you think, okay, how can I respond this day to my neighbor uh, with what Christ has already done and given me so that's kind of my 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 focus uh, as of lately is uh, really spend some time uh, meditating on who Christ is on who God is and who he is specifically in Christ and how I'm called to respond uh, to that that wasn't the sermon for the day just a thought um, but it's so good to see y'all it's really good to see you uh, here so my favorite hour of the week is gathering in this space to worship Jesus Christ alongside of you and today we are continuing to move through a series of messages called New Lens. And uh, really, I've said this every week, let me say it again this week and then next week. Uh, but really, the whole goal of this series, friends, hear me, is just simply to start a conversation about the necessity of operating in life out of a biblical worldview. There's no doubt in my mind that each and every single one of us looks at the world in which we live, the issues that we face, the direction we want to move in, just through a variety of lenses. Uh, what, what is our culture? Uh, what is a political persuasion? Uh, what, of, what is our uh, American uh, perspective? What does um, our family background, what does our own self-interest have to say about the world in which we live and, and how are those lenses guiding us to move forward? What I pray is that ultimately the lens we look through to make sense out of this thing we call life will be a biblical spiritual lens. Realizing, church, that the Holy Scriptures offer for us the best insight into what God desires for our lives each and every day. And since God created us, since God redeemed us at the cross, and since God daily sustains us by the power of his Holy Spirit, I think it's only fitting that he dictates the direction and the course of each of our lives. Well, today we're going to look at um, Jesus' mission for the church. I say all the time that our world in which we live is so confused around two issues, that of identity and that of purpose. And as the church, guess what? We have the answer to both those questions, identity and purpose. And today, Jesus is going to give us our life purpose. If you've ever woken up in the morning and go, why am I even here? What's the point of my existence? Jesus gives you that answer with the mission he lays out for the church in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. L listen to God's word, and in it, as a Christian, please find that this is your primary purpose in life. Jesus, uh, or the scriptures testify in this way. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go. Go and make disciples. This is God's work for God's people. Hear it, believe it, and live. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, I just ask in the midst of these next few moments that you bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be a profit to us and acceptable to you, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let me ask you a question. How good at, are you at doing what you're told? Maybe if you're like me, doing what you're told is dependent on who's actually doing the asking, right? Uh, it, it generally, for me, is contingent on the amount of authority that person has over my life as to whether or not I do what I'm told to do. So growing up in the priesthood household, it didn't take long to realize that Grandma Betty was the lone matriarch of the family. And if Grandma Betty asked you to do something, guess what? There was no hesitation in doing it. You did not ask why. You did not challenge the request. You did not uh, argue your way out of it. That, that is unless you wanted to get a pretty good swipe with her cane. You know, as unsteady as that woman was on her feet, if you crossed her, dazed and confused is all I could say. Let me ask again, how good are you at doing what you're told? Maybe for you, like me, it's dependent on who's doing the asking. Well, at the end of Matthew 28, it, it, Jesus is telling us to do something as his disciples. He's telling us simply to go make Disciples, and right at the beginning of his commission to the church, he speaks to the authority that gives him the credibility to do the asking of us to make disciples for the transformation of the world. He says in verse 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a pretty big claim to be making, isn't it? That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me? Listen. Because of Jesus' impeccable life, because of his sacrificial death, and because of his victorious resurrection from the dead, God Almighty has given him and him alone sole authority to be ruler and judge over all the earth. Now, being the Son of God, if that's, that alone isn't enough to qualify him to have authority over each and every one of our lives. Maybe the fact that he saved us from our sins and resurrected from the dead to defeat our death Maybe that should more than qualify him to speak both identity and purpose into each and every one of our lives. Just as a sidebar, uh, how many of us here allow other people to speak our identity into our lives? Maybe culture, maybe a, a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a, a boss, I, I don't know. Years ago, one of my children was struggling with a bully at school. And uh, this bully's word downright cut her down. I mean, each and every day, they were words that just made her feel like garbage. It doesn't take long, does it, for, for nasty comments to start shaping who you think you are? Anyways, as she was struggling with, with really believing what this person was saying about her, my response was simply this. Hey, what gives that bully the authority to speak into your life? Like, why is that bully's voice louder than the voice of your mother or me, or better yet, God? By, by what authority does she speak to you? 
And how has she earned that authority to shape your character and your identity? Friends, hear me. The only one who has earned the right to tell you who you are is the one who created you, the one who redeemed you at the cross and who daily sustains you by the power of his Holy Spirit that lives within you, given to you as a gift. Now, there's a flip side to this whole authority thing. Like, if we allow Jesus' voice to, to shape our identity, then by his authority, he also gets to direct our life purpose. And that really is the focus of our scripture passage out of Matthew this morning. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, is known as the Great Commission. The Great Commission, or commission, is how Mark Moore in his chapter on uh, Corpus talks about it. The Great Commission is all about making disciples. It's not about making converts. It's not about making money. It's not about... Uh, you know, uh, doing service or, or having impressive uh, programming at a church. It's all about making disciples. And as our King and God, Jesus commands his church to go, go and make these disciples. We must therefore make sure we, we don't dismiss his authoritative word. We must be sure to not relegate it down to maybe the great suggestion or worse than that, the great omission? So, so again, what, what makes us think we can dismiss or subjugate Jesus' directive here to go make disciples? Let me ask again, how good are you at doing what you're told? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Jesus now commands his people, the church, as the authoritative king over their lives. In all honesty, this is a very fitting way for Mark to end, or for Matthew to end his, his gospel narrative on the life of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is when you look at the gospel of Matthew, every gospel writer has a different emphasis as he's writing his, his narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Matthew's motif, the major motif or theme of the gospel of Matthew is really to convey that Jesus is a king who's come to us. It starts at his birth, right? Even before he's born, there's prophecy around the revelation and revelation around this king that was coming. And then he's born, and what happens? People gather, shepherds and magi, to worship the king of kings. As you, you know, move through his life, he grows up and enters into ministry. We read all about the king's speech. It's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus casting a vision of what life in his kingdom is supposed to look like. Sermon on the Mount ends with these words, Matthew 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished. Why were they astonished? For he taught them as one having authority. So the authority of the King Jesus is seen further and as we read testimony after testimony about how his authoritative word can destroy disease and heal defilements and, and take care of even death and disasters. To continue on, Matthew tells us that Jesus rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem as Israel's long-awaited messianic king. Finally, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' authority is solidified when he rose from the dead. Jesus is just not a dead man laid in a tomb. He is a risen conquering king and savior over all the world. 
Man, I love how Philippians 2, Paul, Paul writes it in Philippians 2 about this Jesus. He says, and I quote, that God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven, on earth, and hear this, even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Church, Jesus has earned the right to speak authoritatively in our lives regarding our identity. And specifically for today, regarding our purpose. Matthew 28, again, speaks to Jesus' authority. It also speaks to our assignment. For those of you taking notes, authority, now assignment. Verse 19, Jesus says, Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. There's some Trinitarian language there. And also teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. Now in English, we look at this specific verse and we see that there's several verbs in the sentence. Go, make, baptize, and teach. The reason I bring that up is in the Greek, there's actually only one verb in this verse, not four. And the one verb is make, make disciples. All the rest are actually what's known as participles. Now, don't, go, don't be bored. Unless you're an English major, then you're getting really jazzed up right now. But all part of, uh, participles do is they modify the verb. The verb is the central thing. Everything else is an extension or an application of that verb. So we're called to make disciples while going. Make disciples while baptizing. Make disciples while teaching. Let me say it plainly. For everything the church does, and we, the church does a lot of things, everything we do, the, the, the center of what we do has got to be make disciples. Like if we're not doing that, church, what on earth are we doing? Listen, the criteria on which a church should measure its success is not how many names get on a membership roll. It's not how we increase the budget every year. But really, the, the, the success of any church should be measured on how many Christians are actually drawing more people into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then compelling them to go out and do likewise. It's being disciples who make disciples who then in turn make more disciples let me back up for a moment what is a disciple it's a word that's used all the time in the church but not a word that that we see a lot in, in our cultural context of america so what is a disciple a disciple when you translate it out of the hebrew is the word talmid t-a-l-m-i-d talmid i'm sure tony will correct the the way i pronounce that after service today but, but, but a Talmud was a word that was very prevalent in, in first century. And a Talmud was kind of like a student, but a little bit more than that. So, so, so what a, a person would do is if, if they were really engaged in maybe religious studies at that time, they'd go out and seek a rabbi, somebody they could follow, somebody they could learn under, someone whose um, cause they could come around and after that particular rabbi died could carry it on. Now, Rabbis, you, you didn't really seek out the rabbi as much as the rabbi sought you out. So if you were interested in a rabbi, the rabbi would really kind of put you through a, a line of questioning. They would examine you, they'd ply you with questions, they'd, they'd kind of watch how you carry yourself, they, they would discern if you were truly going to be a person who was behind their cause that would carry it on after they, they were gone. And, 
And if for some reason they thought you fit the bill, guess what? You became their disciple. You were their Talmud or mid. A disciple here it is by definition. A disciple did not merely want to know what the master knew, but a disciple did what the master did. It is said that the highest compliment you could give a Talmud or a disciple, hear this, this is great, the highest compliment you could give them is that the dust of their rabbi was all over you. It means you were following so close to their path that whatever the rabbi stepped in shot up and went on you. So, so, so again, a disciple did not merely know what the master knew, but the disciple did what the master did. A disciple of Jesus is not someone who simply wants to know what Jesus taught. A disciple of Jesus is someone who did what Jesus did and lived as, live, lives as Jesus lived. So, so growing up in the 1980s, uh, there was a really popular kids game, Simon Says. I'm sure they still play it now. You know how it goes, right? Simon says, pat your head. What do you do? You pat your head. Simon says, stand on one foot. What do you do? You stand on one foot. Now, if Simon doesn't say it, you don't do it, right? Or you're out of the game. But when Simon says to do something, you do it. That's the kid's game. It's a funny thing, but in the church, when Jesus says, it's a whole different game, isn't it? When Jesus says to do something, we don't really have to do it. We just have to memorize it or talk about it, or study it. For instance, Matthew 28 says, go make disciples. But how many people and how many churches are actually going out and making disciples? But at least we memorize it. <laughs> well, like if I were to tell my kids, hey, it's Saturday morning, it's cleaning day. Go up and clean your rooms. And they disperse and they go up into their rooms. And hours later, they come down and say, hey, Dad, we memorized what you said. You said, go clean your room." And if it was Maggie who loves foreign language, she might even throw out there, I can say it to you in Greek, right? <laughs> hey, hey, Dad, I hope it's okay, but we're going to gather a bunch of our friends over and, and go up to the room and study about what it would look like if we cleaned our room. <laughs> Church, they know better than that, right? Even my Adelaide knows better than that. When I say go clean your room, they clean their rooms. So in the book of Acts, the, the verb make disciples is used to describe both the initial act of helping somebody come into the saving knowledge of Jesus, but also the act of helping them uh, in the process of sanctification, in the process of developing that relationship for the entirety of their life. And then that person goes out and, and does, it, does it again. So the commission to make disciples is called the Great Commission. It's given to every Christian. Please hear me when I say this. This wasn't a special assignment for a few people. It was the central calling of every follower, every disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me give you some for instances in the Bible, because we want to be a, a biblically rooted and sound doctrine church here. So let me give you some examples. Titus chapter 2. Paul tells the older women to mentor the younger women. 2 Tim, uh, Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to go out and find faithful men within your congregation so they can disciple and train other men. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to the fathers, train your children up in the ways of God. Fathers, did you hear that? 
Are you training your children up in the ways of God? Are you reading them the scriptures? Are you teaching them to pray? Are you serving alongside of them? Hebrews chapter 3, the writer commands every Christian, encourage one another and build each other up every day. Peter and Paul, in so many of their letters to the early church churches, uh, command Christians to use their gifts to build others up, to serve other people. Friends, hear me, please. The Great Commission applies to everyone. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called to go make disciples. Listen, there's no such thing as a non-reproducing Christian. Uh, John says this in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, here it is, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Look at that. How do we prove to be Jesus' disciples? By bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, maybe you have reason to question whether or not you're a disciple of Jesus at all. Don't be mad at me with that statement. That's scriptural, right? Listen, living organisms reproduce. I love how author Robert Coleman says it. He says, a barren Christian is a contradiction. A tree is known by its fruit. Friends, I'm here to tell you the Great Commission is God's plan for teaching the world about his love. Did you hear that? God's plan for teaching the world about his love is not big ministries with silver-tongued preachers. But ordinary Christians, everyday Christians who are filled to capacity with the Holy Spirit, going about their day, discipling everywhere they go. Friends, hear me. You, you are God's method to reaching the world. God's discipleship plan is not something, it's someone. You. I know what you're thinking, me? <laughs> what can I do? I don't know that much. I'm not super talented. Doesn't matter. J Jesus says it's not about your natural ability. It's about your availability <laughs> to be used by the Holy Spirit. It, it just simply starts with you saying, Lord, I want to abide under your authority. I want to live in accordance to your call on my life. So while I'm going... Whether I'm at home, at school, at the workplace, in my community, while I'm going, I'm going to do the best I can to make other disciples. And don't forget the last of the Great Commission. So, so it speaks of, of Jesus' authority to actually speak this call into our lives. It gives us our assignment we are to do as his disciples. And third and final, Jesus offers us the assurance that he will help us as we faithfully follow. Verse 20 of Matthew 28 says this, and Jesus says, and, and remember, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Friends, is there greater comfort than knowing that the resurrected Christ goes with us, every one of us, into our mission field each and every day? Is there greater comfort than that? I love how Mark Moore says it in Core 52. He says, because this is God's mission and our co-mission, He's fully prepared to be fully present. Jesus himself will continue to be with us through the Holy Spirit who will guide, chide, which means rebuke, and provide the wisdom, power, and opportunities. And if I could add, 
if we only believe and faithfully follow. Let me end with this. Uh, there was an English, Englishman named Hudson Taylor years ago. Uh, fell a call in his life to go to the, 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 the foreign mission field. He was from Europe. He wanted to go over to China to, to, to mission, uh, minister and, and to preach the gospel to, to the people in the Far East. And uh, he was dead set and focused on this call and this mission in his life to the point where when he stepped out in faith, he even adapted himself. He changed his appearance. He became accustomed to the cultural mores of, of, the, the, of Asia. And he even learned the language so he could communicate with these people and tell them about Jesus, about the cross, about the empty tomb. And uh, man, God blessed this man's ministry. I mean, countless and countless of people came to faith in Jesus Christ, actually began a ministry uh, under, uh, under a particular name. Well, a Scottish man, another person from Western Europe, also fell a tug in his heart to go to the mission field. And uh, the only problem with this Scottish man is he only had one leg. So before he could go to the mission field in China, he had to go before Hudson Taylor to be assessed as, as to whether or not he had what it took for the rugged environment of, of China to be a missionary. And so uh, Hudson Taylor is kind of looking at him a little bit confused because he's only got one leg. And he's like, what business do you have going to China with only one leg? Do you realize how rugged the conditions are in China, why would you go? To which the Scottish man with one leg says, and I quote, because I don't see people with two legs going. Hudson Taylor immediately granted him his request. He became a missionary in China. Friends, it doesn't matter whether you have one leg or two. <laughs> it doesn't matter how it, uh, well equipped you feel you are as a disciple who makes disciples do you want to know why you still have life on earth here it is it's because god still has a mission for you to fulfill we have a great commission friends to obey and jesus promises to be with us to the end of the age money no money smart not smart rich poor one leg or two legs Jesus says, I will be with you always. Friends, let's be a missional church. Can we be a missional church? Let's step out of our comfort zone. Let's give God our five loaves and our two fish and see what he can do with it. Let's be in the business of being disciples who make disciples. Because I think when it gets down to it, being a disciple who makes disciples this is really what it means to love God and love others. Let's be a missional church. Let's make disciples for Jesus Christ. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, in, in this crazy world in which we live, it really can be hard to understand the purpose of our existence. Like, am I here just to suck air? Am I here to make a name for myself, to have kids? Am I here to leave this world better off than I found it? Oh God, it can be so confusing, yet you make it so clear. In Matthew 28, you give us our marching order, the purpose of our existence. We are to be disciples, your disciples, who, while going about our days, make more disciples. Therefore, oh God, may we live under your authority with the full assurance that you will go with us to help us fulfill the Great Commission. 
Lord, until all the world hears, may we never grow tired, may we never grow weary in doing good, in loving you and loving others. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. And all God's people said, 